this is the time of year where you think back on uh, the whole year. And uh, a lot of us, we think back in this particular year, back to uh, 2020, right? right? Parts of 2019, when things were, were normal. Fast forward when things were not normal. We're here, we hear the news, we hear things going on, uh, Omicron variant. I mean, you're hearing, in, in this day and age, you, you just can't help but look back and just think, what in the world is going on? And I want to preach this message through that lens, right? through the lens that you have a lot going on, or at least in your life, that's what you feel, that's what you believe, and that's a very true statement, that many of us have a lot of things we're dealing with uh, this time of year. And what I want you to understand and what I want you to, to see through Scripture is in God's providential plan, nothing that you're going through, nothing that you're dealing with isn't intertwined, uh, and as a matter of fact, bringing about God's redemptive plan in history. And I really hope, and my prayer this morning is that through this sermon, you're going to believe that. You're going to come to not just believe it uh, theorically or just a matter of factually, but you're going to believe it because you're going to see it permeating through Scripture. You're going to believe that you're a part of God's redemptive plan because uh, Scripture doesn't leave out the hard parts. It includes them, and it actually uses them to show us that God is in control of all things and how God uses all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And we see that in Romans 8, 28. To illustrate this point, uh, I remember in early years in my ministry, uh, I moved to Arkansas to take uh, part in a ministry uh, resident uh, program. And while I was there, I was there for a year, uh, they didn't offer much in compensation, but what they lacked in compensation, they gave you an experience in being around other people in ministry. And so I took the opportunity to do this, and I come from a pretty uh, poor family, and so they weren't able to subsidize my lack of income with their income. Uh, and so I spent uh, the first few months scraping by. Uh, and there was a time in my struggle at this ministry resident uh, program, far away from home, uh, alone by myself, and I was sitting in my uh, little, uh, little apartment that uh, they furbished for me, which was nice. Uh, and I sat there, and I didn't have any food, and I was hungry, and I didn't have the money to go buy food, because that's just the place I was in in my life in that moment, uh, and I went into my pantry, because my aunt, uh, when I moved a couple months before that, stocked me with all of this survival food. You have, you have those people in your family, right? Uh, and she knew that I didn't have money to buy groceries, so she packed me all into these things. And a couple months in, I was kind of out of most of that food, and I was scrunching around, opening the drawers, seeing what was left, and I, and I found a can that was way back in the back. And I reached back, and I looked at it, and it said chicken and dumplings. And I said, hmm, that sounds good, chicken and dumplings in a can. <laughs> and it was one of the only things I had left to eat uh, from what was given to me. Uh, and I opened the can... And I poured it out into a bowl and stuck it in the microwave. Mmm. And I heated it up, and as I took it out and put the spoon in, uh, the, the can fell into the trash can bottom side up. And I looked, and there was an expiration date on the bottom of the can, and I looked at it, and that can of chicken and dumplings has been expired for a year. And I said, mmm, this is sounding really good, isn't it? And I ate that chicken and dumplings, because it's the only thing that I had. 
and you can look at that moment, maybe like I did at the time, and think, man, this is a struggle. Man, this is, this is hard. Why am I doing this? Why is my life at this point, and, and what's, what comes after this? What am I doing here? Uh, but in my life now, as I've grown and as I'm standing here planting this church and looking at all you guys and seeing all the excitement that God's planting a new lampstand here in New Braunfels and all the ministry that we're doing, that is one of those Ebenezer moments from the Old Testament, one of those things I look back at and say, God has brought me safe thus far. He will carry me on. And this is one of those moments in my history that I look back and say, I remember when I was eating chicken and dumplings out of a can that were a year expired. And I know looking back now that even if I was financially in that situation, uh, money aside, I have so many people around me that would never let me eat chicken and dumplings in a can ever again, right? And you know that to be true because many of you are those people who would care and take care of us and help us. Point is this, I want you to understand that biblically speaking, your struggles, all the things that you're going through are perfectly intertwined in God's plan for you. God's plan for me. And all throughout Scripture, we see this working out in the lives of everyone that we find introduced through the narrative of Scripture. And I don't want you to forget that because we often do forget it. Because often when we're going through struggles, the last thing we do is open up the Bible. I mean, it's, it, unfortunately, it's the truth. Our temptation, the sin of the flesh, Satan's schemes to keep us from doing the things that we ought to be doing always take us away from God's Word and into self-pity into the, into the inner struggles that we have in our lives, and it keeps us away from those things because I want to go to those things when life is better. When I get everything put together, I'm going to then go back to God. And God's saying, no, you need to be with me while you're going through these struggles. Uh, and you're going to see that throughout this whole sermon, and I hope throughout your whole life as you struggle, you're going to frame it within the context of God's providential care in your life. Because in this sermon, you're going to understand that in the midst of your struggles, Christmas should adjust your focus so that you can see how God's promises are perfectly planned out. And in your struggles, seeing in Scripture how God perfectly plans out the life of all those people who you read about, who you love to read about, like David and Goliath and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, uh, all of these people, Daniel and the lions, then you love to go to those stories because you see that in the midst of someone's struggle and despair, God shows up and redeems them and lifts them up out of the place they are in their life. And you love those stories. And what I'm saying, God puts you in those stories every single week in your life. You just get to choose to be faithful or to be unfaithful. And many times in our lives, we choose to be unfaithful. And we don't find our lives reflecting biblical narrative in so many instances because we don't choose the faithful route. But then we also won't look at ourselves as the unfaithful characters in the Bible because we don't want to look at ourselves in that way. But in our lives as Christians, there's only two roads. The faithful steward or the unfaithful steward. And we as Christians need to be looking at this time of year, uh, even as Scott said as he was talking about how this is the busy time of year, I'm glad you're here. In my mind, I'm thinking, there's no other place you should be. I mean, this is the place you should be. There's not a radio station, uh, minus some good Christian radio stations. Uh, there's not a store. Uh, there's not a place you're going to go that's going to propagate such a message that says this is so important, you need to focus on this. Now, there's a lot of people who's going to propagate messages that tell you this is important when it's really not going to sell you some bill of goods that aren't going to help you any. Uh, that's what people have turned Christmas into if you let them. Now, no one can make Christmas what it is not. You can only allow people to try to tell you what Christmas is because we know what Christmas is about and nothing can change the message of Christmas. And that, my friends, is why we need to be here during the Christmas season. Now, this all, understanding 
God's providential plan in our struggles should lead us to greater personal faithfulness. And we see that in Scripture. When we see so many people going through very, very difficult times, uh, God shows up, God redeems them, and those people become more faithful. And that's what God does in our own lives as we struggle. As I sat there and ate that can of chicken and dumplings, and my car uh, at the time was, was breaking down, uh, I was also had a, I still had a note on it, which means I still had to pay every month. And one month I was $120 short, and I was literally a week after I was eating these chicken and dumplings, I was praying to God, God, how am I going to take care of this car? You, you've moved me here to Arkansas. You knew I wasn't going to make enough money. You knew I was going to eat chicken and dumplings out of a can. Why am I here? I go out to my mailbox, unlock the mailbox, and there is a, a unmarked uh, a card uh, with no return address. And I open it, and there was a check for $120, which covered the rest of my car for that month. And it's those opportunities where I say, you know what, I'm going to be more faithful because what I see is God providentially caring for his saint. And what I'm saying is you have to be faithful to allow God's faithfulness to be evident in your life. Because the moment during Christmas when you forget about God, you don't think about Christmas, you're concerned with all these things going on, you lost a loved one, uh, you know, you're going through all these financial struggles, you may, your job's not going very well, you're, you've been living in sin, so you just don't even want to think about God. You can't see God's faithfulness in those moments unless you turn to God's faithfulness. And in God's faithfulness, you're going to find that God is doing such a great work. And if you would just focus on him during this time of year, you're going to be amazed to see what God has done in your life. And what we're going to find out this morning is how God has used this same motive all throughout Scripture to bring about his plan of salvation for all of those who believe. Now, I'm setting you up real good here because I want to tell you, if you don't do this, right? if you neglect focusing on God this Christmas, you're going to be anxious, right? You're going to be lacking understanding of God's providential plan. And many of you, I, this has been one of my biggest prayers pastorally. I've had, I can't tell you, uh, you know, our church, around 250 people or so, uh, a, a, a lot of you, a third of you, I've heard, I'm dealing with anxiety this time of year. I'm dealing with struggle. And I'm sitting here thinking, yes, and I understand, right, that we're going to deal with struggle. And we've got to see what God's word says about it. Why are we anxious? Because the Bible says, don't be anxious about anything. So how are we going to solve that problem. We're going to solve that problem by refocusing our minds and our lives on the true message of Christmas. Because when we understand how God's working, and that, that is the, the goal here. You want this year to be what it needs to be, at least internally in your life. You've got to understand how God works. Right? God's not going to be working on your time. He works on His time. So it's best for us to get on His time management schedule. And when we do that, those things will work themselves out. Because as we said before in Romans 8, 28, right, God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Keeps going, doesn't it? And are called according to his purposes. Right? God's not working all things out for the good of those who don't love him and do, are not called according to his purposes. Right? God works out all things for good of those who love him and who are called in obedience underneath his providential plan of care. And so what I'm saying is this morning when we're dealing with these problems during Christmas, whether it's anxiety, uh, whether, it's, whether it's depression, I mean, we keep going. Whether it's you living in, in such a sinful lifestyle that you cannot find yourself following God, I'm telling you, yes, God's probably not working out your sin in such a way where you feel fulfilled into the callings of God because you're not doing it. You're not loving God and you're not being called according to His purposes. But if you would align yourself to be called according to God's purpose and you would love God and obey His word because Jesus said, if you love me, you will you will keep my commandments, you will obey me, right? You will obey me. 
that there it is. There's your, your message of Christmas. For those who love God are called according to his purposes. He works all things out for the good of those. Now, what we're going to see here in Matthew 1, you can go ahead and flip your Bible open to Matthew 1, is we're going to see a story culminating in the birth of Christ that shows how God's promises reach throughout all of history, from Abraham to Christ and all those who are in Christ are then therefore heirs of God. And so this family line doesn't just begin and end from Abraham to Christ. It includes all those who call on the name of Christ, who turn from their sins and trust in him, are then heirs of God. And so this line goes on and the promise of Abraham that all the nations will be blessed comes all the way down to you and me for all of those who turn from their sins and trust in Christ. And so this genealogy, even though we're ending it this morning, it doesn't end. Because as we read a couple of weeks ago, when we open up to Revelation, and we see that before the throne of God, there are people from every tribe, every nation, every language, and every tongue praising God. And if that's the case, that means the family line doesn't end just because we finish with Matthew 1. It shows us that God's got a providential plan, and he has a salvific plan for all of those who return from their sins and trust in him. And that is why this Christmas we focus in on the genealogy. We focus in on what God is doing because after Christmas, nobody's going back to the genealogy of Christ until next year. And the question is why we should always be going back to the genealogy of Christ because it's always pointing us to people who need Christ. And it always points us to people who need him and need to be shared the good news of the gospel of Christ. Now, there's all of that. But, you know, in God's providential plan, there's one thing God never promised. God made a lot of promises in Scripture. But there's one thing God never promised in Scripture, and it's a life without struggle. You see, this morning, we're going to find three people whose faithfulness in the midst of their problems, in the midst of their struggles, show how God is faithful to his promise, even in the midst of our struggles. First person I want you to look at is in verse 12 in chapter 1 of Matthew. And he comes by the name of Zerubbabel. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament and the post-exilic period, you're going to know about Zerubbabel. But many of you, if you're like I was when I was introduced to Christianity and, and I was saved and I was years even into going to church, I had no idea who Zerubbabel was. And so for sake of introducing uh, this fine, wonderful guy, uh, Zerubbabel was the governor of Judah after the exile. Okay, he was also in the line, as you see in verse 12, of David. So he was in the line of David, but also the governor of Judah, which was the province there in Jerusalem. So it also, he was in the line of Judah, but he was also over the land of Judah as well. And so this was him after he was brought out of exile from Persia. Okay, he was sent by King Cyrus to go rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And, I, and you're going to say things like I said, well, I thought he was taken over by Babylon. He was. He was they were taken over by Babylon, taken out of exile. But by this time, uh, 538 B.C., uh, Babylon was taken over by Persia. Okay, and so now you have the Israelites who are now uh, in, in, under the control of Persia, not Babylon. And so the next year after Persia took over Babylon, King Cyrus said, hey, Zerubbabel, because you've asked so nicely, I'm going to let you go back to your homeland because we didn't even exile you anyway. And so go back to your land and go build your temple. And so this is where we find ourselves. And this is where Zerubbabel found himself in uh, biblical history. And so 539 BC, uh, sorry, 538 BC, you have Zerubbabel going back to uh, Judah, to Jerusalem, 
to build God's temple. Now, that's a good thing, isn't it? To go back and build a temple in which proper worship can be installed back into the life of the Israelites. That's a good thing. right? You and I see that as a blessing. And if we could go in our own lives and be a part of God's plan in such a way where we can help people worship God better, don't you want to be part of that kind of plan where you help people see clearly and live their life in such a way they can be pleasing to God? Well, you're going to say, this is a win. You want to be a part of that. And Zerubbabel very much wanted to be a part of installing proper worship back into Israel. Now, that's a good thing, but it came with a lot of struggle. And I want to give you what, three struggles that Zerubbabel dealt with in the midst of his personal faithfulness. In the midst of his faithfulness, Zerubbabel dealt with a lot of conflict. And the first one is in Ezra 4, 4 through 6. You don't have to turn to all of these, but at least write them down so you can go back to them later. One of the big conflicts Ezra had uh, in the midst of trying to build this temple uh, back in Jerusalem was he had a lot of conflict with local residents, people who, people who stayed around, neighbors who kind of moved in after, the ex- uh, before, after they were exiled to Babylon. There were these people who stayed around. And multiple times when you read in Ezra, uh, people came and were said, we do not want you guys to build this temple. We want no part in this. Actually, the first one, they kind of secretly come in and say, hey, you wanna, we'll, we'll help you build this. You know, we'll help you build this temple. That happens a lot in our lives. How many people said they want to help you with something and they actually want to come in and, and harm the, what's going on? Where well, we all know this. We all have conflict with residents and neighbors and people around us. And he had the same struggle. And so after he told them, no, we don't need your help. You're no part in this. Uh, this is our job as Israel. We're coming to build this temple. Uh, they got mad and they, they ran off. And then two times, two separate times, uh, these people, these same people went and wrote uh, uh, a note, we'll just call it a note, went and wrote a note and took it back to uh, the Persian king and said, hey, you can't let them do this. If you realize these people were, were awful, they didn't listen to the kings who were over them, you need to stop this or you're going to allow something to happen that shouldn't be happening here. And twice we see in Ezra, the king of Persia saying, you guys need to stop. These people have made a good point. You guys need to quit. And so multiple times you see as Zerubbabel is trying to be faithful to God, his neighbors and the people around him are saying, you need to stop. You don't need to be faithful to God because we don't want you to be faithful to God. Basically what they're saying here. Sounds a lot. You can probably relate to some of this, can't you? Realize that Zerubbabel, even in the midst of his pursuit of personal faithfulness to God, has been dealing with a lot of conflict, and it came in the light of people across the street, people around his neighborhood, people in his town. Okay, we as Christians deal with a lot of conflict with people around where we live, our neighbors, our friends. It's another place Zerubbabel had a lot of conflict, and it's a place that you and I have a lot of conflict in, and we just don't like to admit it, and we at least don't like to talk about it, and it's with our family and friends. Do you know, as Zerubbabel was being faithful to, to build the temple there after it was demolished from the Babylonians years before, uh, we're going to find uh, that Israel, at least Zerubbabel's family and friends, had a lot of discontent and apathy in Israel. As a matter of fact, Zerubbabel went to build this temple back in Jerusalem, and you know what everyone else did? According to the prophet Haggai, everyone else, when they were going down there to build a temple, they focused on building their own homes. They said, you know, we don't want to focus on God. We want, we want to do our own thing. I got my own house I want to build. I got my own problems. I got my own family I need to take care of. Uh, which should hearken us back to saying, where should you be on Sundays? worshiping the Lord, fellowshipping with the saints. Uh, but so many of us, like Haggai points out, and Haggai was a prophet during the time of Zerubbabel in chapter 1, he's like, listen, I'm, I'm very 
disheartened by the fact that I see all of these people who claim to be faithful Israelites who came back to build the temple, and now that a couple of things got in the way and life got a little bit difficult, you just you know, shrugged off the temple over to the side, and now you're just doing your own thing. And I want to point out how many times in our own lives, life gets hard, baby comes, uh, hard times come, and the first thing that leaves our schedule is communing with the body of Christ. The first thing that leaves our schedule is worshiping God, is a quiet time in the morning. You, you notice that? that when, in, even in our life group, we talk about this, and I'm guilty of it as well. Anytime something difficult goes on in our life, do you know the first thing that's always on the chopping block? Quiet time. Why? Quiet time. It is, it is the one thing. I don't get up, I don't read my Bible, I don't pray. How did that become the normative thing that we always shirk off when, we're, when life gets busy, when life gets hard? Well, it's all of a matter of us focusing on the right things, like we've said before. And Christmas is all about focusing on the right things. But I want to show you how Zerubbabel, even though that he had conflict with his neighbors, problems with his family and friends who wouldn't focus on building God's temple while they were there, uh, that he was still faithful. He wasn't perfect, but he was faithful. The third thing that, that he dealt with was unmet expectations. And this may be the biggest one that he dealt with that, that we're going to relate to in a lot of ways. Do you know in Ezra chapter 3 and verses 11 and 12, uh, they actually at this point had uh, finished the foundation of the temple. And you know, you finish the foundations of something, you can kind of see how big it is and how, how nice it's going to look. You know that when you built your house or you've seen a house built. When you see the foundation built, it's a big moment. It's a big moment. They actually had a whole ceremony there in, in Ezra chapter 3, and they were celebrating. Uh, but while there were a lot of people celebrating, I want you to, to listen to what else was happening. After this foundation was built, all the people shouted with great shouts of joy when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Verse 12. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of their father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, which is the first temple before it was restored, here's what they did. They wept loud with voices when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Do you hear that? I mean, in the midst of, of, of a man being faithful and leading a group of people to go build the house of the Lord, there are those people who saw the first house who look at it and just say, this is awful. This is nothing like the first one. Right? They just had unmet expectations. I mean, no one made the promise to them to say, hey, uh, this thing's going to be bigger and better. They just said, hey, we're going to go rebuild the house of God. And, of course, we don't have the finances and the time, and we don't have all of the, the groups of people that we had here before that built this wonderful temple. What we have is what God has given us, and we're going to build God's temple because we're going to be faithful. So he, he dealt with this. But I want to insert a little bit of God's providential plan here. You see that Zerubbabel is going through a lot of stuff. And even in the complaining, God is going to do something. And here's what God does. Uh, when these people started complaining, God then brings that prophet Haggai into the picture. And he says, you guys are complaining. And here's what God does. You can flip to this if you want to. I'll read it to you here. Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2 there in your Old Testament. All these people were complaining about what was going on in, in the world there as they were building the temple. And here's what Haggai the prophet has to say to them. Speak now in, in chapter, two of, uh, ch chapter 2, verse 2. It says, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and tell the remnant of people and say this, Who has left, you, who has left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing to your eyes? Well, here's the prophet saying, Those of you who have seen this, those of you who are crying right now, do you not 
do you not realize what God is doing? Do you not realize that God is, is bringing back proper worship into Israel? And he says in verse 4, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. I love this. Work, for I am with you. This is, a great, this is a great point to make in God's providential plan of care, is that you can't have these unmet expectations because life doesn't look like you thought it was supposed to look like. Like What God calls us to is personal faithfulness. What God called the Israelites who came back from Babylonian captivity was, hey, come rebuild the temple. I gave you this land. I took you out of it, and I'm bringing you back to it, and i got a plan that you need to follow. Just be faithful. And this is what Haggai keeps saying. And he says this in verse 5, According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill the house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. He means the temple. Verse 8, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. In this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Well, if you didn't realize, that's a prophetic, uh, that's a prophetic announcement to the, the temple that we're going to have celebrated in the new Jerusalem. That's, that's an eschatological temple that actually never was built up to this date because it's a prophetic temple that is yet to be built. But this was a picture of the true worship of the glory of God filling the temple in which it says, I'm going to give my peace to this place. It is an announcement of, of the coming of the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ when he rules and he reigns. And this is that picture. And this is God saying, you guys don't like this. You just wait to see what's coming. But this is where you're at right now. And God is declaring that you have personal faithfulness where you are now. Now I say that, and let me give you a pastoral point to make. Your life doesn't look like the new life that you're going to have when you get to heaven, right? Your body's not perfect. Your attitude's not perfect. Your sin life sure isn't all buttoned up where it should be. And you know that to be true. Um, and you know that when you get to this, the, the new heaven, the new earth that you're going you're to dwell in, okay, and you're going to see the temple as it is displayed right here, uh, you're going to see all things in perfection. And you're going to see your life uh, brought under the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ in ultimate perfection. And that's how you're going to live. That's a good picture. However, you still live here right now. And although there's going to be a lot of unmet expectations, life isn't going to look like how you want it to look like uh, from a lot of different areas, right? Your body is not functioning well, right? You don't look as nice as you want to be. Your family doesn't like you. Your neighbors don't like you. Your house isn't as nice as you thought it was going to be. I mean, we can just keep going because we can draw a lot of parallels from Zerubbabel's life here, okay? But the point is still the same, right? That ultimately, what God calls us to is personal faithfulness here in the here and now, because he's got a great promise to look forward to in the then and there. And the good news here, and the significance of everything I'm just telling you here, is Zerubbabel's faithfulness led Israel back to proper worship towards God after their exile. And as a matter of fact, his obedience even shed light on the future coming of Christ. You see, it was him coming back into the land, building the temple, people complaining about it, where the prophet was like, hey, you just wait to see what God's going to reveal when he comes and he rules and he reigns. And so knowing that God is faithful to his promise should lead us to greater personal faithfulness to God. And that's point number one in your outline. You can write it this way. Don't underestimate the power of personal faithfulness to God. Do not underestimate the power of personal faithfulness to God.
two scriptures you can jot down. You don't have to flip to them, just jot it down. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4.2. 1 Corinthians 4.2 talks about the way that we should be faithful. As a matter of fact, it says it is required of stewards. That's what it says in verse 2 of chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians. It's required of stewards that they be found faithful. Did you know that? As Christians, it's, it's required. It's not an option. It's not something that we get to decide to do tomorrow, uh, but not next week. I mean, it is required for stewards. And we're all stewards of God's varied graces, right? You've heard of that one, right? Uh, we are all ambassadors of Christ, which is, a, is indeed a stewardship. We've been given a lot of stewardship as believers. There's, a lot of, there's parables completely committed to the idea of stewardship and how we handle the Christian life. And what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.2 is, it's a requirement that we be found faithful as stewards of God. Now, 1 Peter 4.19 says, how do I act in that stewardship? 1 Peter 4.19 says this, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Didn't that sound just like the life that Zerubbabel was dealing with? And for some of you in here who are living faithfully, does this not sound like the life that you're going through? i got to be a faithful steward. Therefore, as I suffer according to God's will, I'm going to entrust my soul to a faithful creator while doing good. I mean, this, this flips our self-pity worldview up on its head. Self-pity says, hey, when I'm dealing with a hard time, I'm out. Uh, no community for me, no church for me. I'm calling in my boss, telling him I'm taking a couple of personal days. Out. Okay, I'm out. But that's not what this says. It says, for those of you, and it, it makes a, there, there's a caveat here, not those who aren't suffering according to God's will. Right? There's many people who are suffering not according to God's will. And what I mean by that is you put yourself there because you're in your sin. And God's will is that you repent. So if you want to put yourself back into God's will as you suffer, and you're living in sin, and a lot of your problems are becoming because uh, you're not following God, you're sinning, you're sinning against your spouse, you're sinning against your children, you're sinning against uh, your, well, God mainly, but all those things that you're doing, God wants you to repent, turn away from those things, ask for forgiveness. Okay? Then you can be in the middle of God's will as you're suffering. And now it says this, now as you're suffering, you need to entrust your soul to a faithful creator. Many of the faithful uh, heroes we see in Scripture are people who did just that. God didn't redeem every single person from their temporal issues and their temporal sufferings at the time of their, un their untimely death in Scripture, but they still entrusted their souls to a faithful creator. And we see it throughout history that people, even in the midst of struggle and pain and despair, entrusted themselves to a faithful creator. And, and here's the last part of this, while doing good. It changes the entire way that we look at suffering. Suffering is a, is, a, is a megaphone in our lives that allow people to see how we think about God when life isn't perfect. And for you and for me, when we suffer, we should be more present in the family of God. Can I give a pastoral, can I do a pastoral point here? A lot of us, as a pastor, I see this over and over again. I want you to look at me here because I, I, I don't want this to be Compass Bible Church. You notice like when, you, when something happens in your life, a pain, a struggle, a loss, uh, or any kind of catastrophic event, and often you say things like this, well, the people at my church, they just don't know how to handle it, or, or no one just knows how to talk to me. Well, do you want to know what the biggest problem in our society is? That when you struggle, you hermit, and you give nobody opportunities to learn how to help people struggle, Okay. The first thing that we do when life gets difficult is we go to our home, we shut the door, we lock the door, we go to our bedroom, lock that door, turn off the lights, and we jump in bed. Okay, when the first place you need to be when life is hard is in the community of believers. 
And right, give them grace. Maybe they don't know how to deal with somebody who's crying in life group because life is so difficult, but that is exactly the place that you need to be. And it actually is a mark of personal faithfulness that you find yourself within the family of God when you're struggling. And you're going to help teach the people of God how to rise up and help people. And we can't do that if we're not there. And so when, when you're hurt, right, when someone dies, right, when, 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 catas- when catastrophic things hit, the, hit your life, when your kids leave you and they forsake you, all those things, find yourself in the community of God. Insert yourself in the community of God. We don't need to see texts and emails saying, I just can't come tonight because so-and-so, something happened. Good. Get into life group. Get into the lives of other people. Let them, let them love you. Teach them how to help hurting people. And that's what we're talking about here. You need to trust yourself to a faithful creator while doing good. Not go and hermit you got to understand that you can't underestimate the power of personal faithfulness to God, which means even when life gets hard, God's got a plan. God's got a promise, and you got to wrap yourself in that promise, and part of that promise is you being within the people of God. Long point one. I want to continue the idea of keeping our eyes on God's promise. Uh, look at verse 16. I could have Honestly, I could have picked any of these people, but for sake of your time, I only picked three. In verse 16, it says, And Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. I want to zoom in on the life of, of Joseph. I don't think we do that enough, and I don't think we even know who Joseph is. Actually, I, I saw uh, from a commentator the other day, do you don't realize how big of a deal Joseph was? Did you know if the kingdom would have never split and Jerusalem would have never fought, fallen, he would have been King Joseph? You ever thought about that? I mean, that he was the next in line. That is why Jesus was born to him, because it fulfills him being in the line of David. And Joseph was the heir to the line of David. And so just how significant Joseph really is in the whole grand story of things, and you kind of shirk him off as a stepdad who just kind of was the fill-in, right? But we're talking about Joseph here. The, the, he was in the line of David, heir to the throne. And he was also Mary's fiance. Well, I, I want to take a, a moment, maybe a comical moment, just to kind of look at the first couple of years of the, of the relationship that Joseph had with Mary, okay? Follow along with me. You don't have to flip, but just, just zoom in with your mind. Matthew 1.18, your fiancé is pregnant with a baby that's not yours. It's already where Joseph kind of enters into the, the narrative here, problematic. By the way, this baby is God, right? Matthew 1.23, uh, by the way, Luke 2, 1 through 4 says, Now there's a census being taken, and you need to take your very pregnant wife on a journey to your ancestral home, Bethlehem. Uh, Matthew two thirteen. Uh, After Jesus is born, Joseph finds out that King Herod wants to kill him. So then they flee to Egypt. You already see the, this guy's life marred with struggle, marred with all the... Like, what is going on? I mean, he, you couldn't be any more uh, confused and uncertain about where life is going if you're Joseph in this picture. Matthew 2, 19 through 23. After Herod dies, they return and find out that Herod's son is in charge. So they thought there was some good news. An angel comes to him in a dream and says, hey, Herod's dead. Go back. And he's like, all right. So they're going back, and they find out his son's in charge. And they're like, well, we can't go back to Bethlehem now. And so then they go to Judea. Instead of Judea, they go to Galilee, to Nazareth. This is the first couple of years of the life of Joseph being betrothed and married to Mary. I mean, this is his life. He didn't ask for this, right? He didn't ask to be the stepfather of God. 
right? I mean, he didn't ask. He didn't be asked to get thrusted into this position. But sometimes personal faithfulness requires us to do things that are uncomfortable. And sometimes it's necessary for you and me to say, you know what? I know the power of personal faithfulness, and I got to do it even when I don't know what's going on. But here's something really cool I want you to see. I'm going to flip to it in my Bible. You can flip to it in yours. Uh, Luke 2, 25. Go to Luke 2, 25. In the midst of uncertainty uh, that obviously Joseph had to have been dealing with a whole lot, I, I see this Luke 2, 25 and through 33, at least those few verses there, as just a wonder. And I think if you slow down and read Scripture here, you're going to see this as one of those pleasant situations in life where things kind of come into focus. Verse 25, it says, Now there was a, in chapter 2 of Luke, it says, And now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, that is, the Messiah, right, the Savior. And he came in the Spirit into the temple where uh, Jesus and Mary and Joseph were at that point. And he came into the temple when the parents brought the child of Jesus in to do for them according to the custom of the law. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said this in verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. I want you to pay attention to verse 33. And his father, Joseph, and his mother, Mary, marveled at what was said about him. That's it, right there. Did you see that? Joseph and Mary marveled. In the midst of their uncertainty, in the midst of all the things they were doing, not to mention they were at the temple where you were told to take your young child to offer the proper sacrifices for your firstborn son that you were supposed to do. So not only were they being personally faithful to God by taking him to the temple and offering all those things in which you were called to do, even though that Joseph knew that's not my son by my blood, but it is my son, he still was personally faithful to go to the temple. And as he's at the temple, God blesses him by saying, hey, Simeon, this faithful, devout Jew who's been waiting for the consolation of Israel, to see the salvation has been brought, lifts up this baby and says, here he is. And as he prophesies, it says, this is the Lord's Christ who's going to come and save the whole world. And he's holding that baby. And Joseph in this point said, oh, you know, I needed that. That's what this is all about. I was going through all of these uncertain things and it's being brought about that through the uncertainty of my life, the redemption of the lives of others are going to be impacted because of my obedience and because of me just doing what God asked me to do, even when things aren't so clear. And it's point number two for you is, you know, Joseph was in the face of uncertainty, but yet he remained faithful. You need to, point number two, stay resolute in the face of uncertainty. That means you need to be firm. You need to be unyielding, steadfast, and immovable. I know life is uncertain. I know there's a lot of things you don't even know that's going to happen next week. Of course you don't, right? The Bible says don't even worry about those things. Today has enough worries of its own. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. The Bible tells us that. And to not be anxious about tomorrow, that command for us shows that God knows that we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen next week. There's so much uncertainty going on in our lives, and that doesn't slow down just because it's Christmas, matter of fact, the world wants it to speed up, so we'll speed through the idea of Christmas and the real promises that we've been given by God. I want to give you the way that 
that Christ thinks about our faithfulness, even in the midst of not understanding something. You find it in John 13. Flip to John 13. John 13, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 13, verse 7. Here you have uh, Jesus coming, he's washing the disciples' feet. Uh, and this is how silly we look when we don't trust God. And I, this is, I want you to laugh at yourself a little bit like I laughed at myself. Uh, verse 7, chapter 13, John. It says, Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. And of course he's talking about washing his feet, being a servant, right? I have come, I've come to serve, not to be served. The idea that, that the suffering servant was also the Christ. And so if the Christ, the King of glory, or the Lord of the universe is serving, then you also should be serving. This is the idea that Christ is talking about. You don't know it now, but you're going to understand it later. That's the whole picture here. And Peter says to him in verse 8, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If, you don't, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. All right, there's, there's a remark, right? Obviously, Peter has no idea what he's talking about. And how many times in our life uh, do, do we make comments to God and we, we sound really foolish because we have no idea what God's doing? And just God calls us to personal faithfulness. I mean, Peter could have just stopped and did nothing but just let Jesus do what he was going to do. You know, that's my personality. Sometimes I'm just like, just do what you're going to do so I don't look stupid. Um, but sometimes I do stick my own foot in my mouth. Uh, and this is an opportunity for us to see that we all do this. You have no part for me if you don't let me wash your feet. Simon Peter says, like a dum-dum, Lord, not my feet, but my whole body, my hands and my feet. Do everything. Just wash it all. And Jesus says, that's, that's not what I'm here to do. Okay. And what I'm saying is sometimes if you would just shush right, and just follow God, just let him do what God's going to do, even when things are uncertain. Obviously, Peter is very uncertain with what Christ was doing at all, but he just wanted to lead. Peter's like, I, I, I want to talk. I want to be the main guy. I want to be the leader. I want to be the guy. Don't be the guy. Christ is the guy. Just, just follow him. You have to know what's going on. You don't have to be certain about everything. Just follow him and stay resolute. Just to trust that God, in the midst of uncertain circumstances, still has a plan and a promise. Some of you may think that's hard to not allow uncertain circumstances to cause doubt in your life. You do. You often allow uncertain circumstances to cause doubt in your life. And I'll challenge you, you can, you can win in this area of your life. You can, you can be resolute in the face of uncertainty if you understand God's plan. Right? Just like Simon, Peter in this point, right? if he would have understood God's plan, what Christ was doing, he wouldn't have asked those questions because he'd have known. Now, of course, he didn't know, and, and Christ said, you don't know what I'm doing now, but you're going to know. Okay? In the same way, for you and I, we can be certain in the midst of uncertainty if we know God's plan. Right? And that is what it takes to be resolute in the face of uncertainty, is understanding God's plan. I think of 2 Peter 3.9. 2 Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. Do you know that's one of the biggest objections in our world when it comes to Christ and His divinity and uh, all the promises that He made? This is what uh, atheists or agnostics will tell you. You know, if, if Jesus was real, he'd have came back. He ain't been back in 2,000 years. He told you guys he was coming back to get you. And this is one of the big objections. If Christ was going to come back, he'd have done it already. And I'm saying you don't understand God's plan. I mean, you, you strictly don't understand because it literally says it in the Bible. The Lord isn't slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness. Right? Some people are like, oh, he's being slow. 
As a matter of fact, it says this, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The, the very person who's, who's pointing their finger at Jesus saying, well, if he was real, he'd have came back already, is the same person Jesus isn't coming back right now because he wants that person to be saved. Think of the, is that not a Simon Peter moment, right? Is that not a Simon Peter moment? And what I'm saying is we got to understand God's plan. In, in one way, I want you to think about it this way. And I want you to now, I want you to think about yourself. How is the event going on in your life right now? Not your life, maybe your life, but look, global scale, whatever you want to go, global, national, personal. Uh, how is that event allowing people to be saved? I mean, think about that. I remember there was a big refugee crisis when I was in high school, and there were all these people from all these nations in the 1040 window, which is the least reached place in the world when it comes to the gospel. And they were all being brought here, a lot of them. And I thought in my mind, wow, what an amazing opportunity for places that you and I could never go to legally because people don't want Jesus and people will not allow you in there to preach the gospel. Now they're coming here. Like, who would have thought? We get to preach to the gospel of these people because they're coming to get it. And, then, and what I'm saying here, there is so much political turmoil, which whatever, whatever you, you, you have that debate, but the debate I'm going to have with you is about the gospel. So you can talk to me about the gospel or politics, you pick, Okay. I'm going to tell you that there was not a greater opportunity in this day and age in the history of the world to share the gospel with people who would have never heard it. We have opportunities to look at any event that happens, whether it's COVID, whether it's you're at a funeral and you've been asked to speak to your family who are non-Christians and there's somebody that has just passed away, a loved one in front of you, and you get to be in front of everybody and you get to do something. You get to choose what it is. You can preach the gospel to people who need it or you cannot. You have a choice. And you see what I'm saying here? When you look at every event in the midst of uncertainty as asking yourself the question, God's got a plan, and one of those plans is a redemptive plan. That's one. There's two plans. One's redemptive. So the redemptive plan is how is God using this event in this moment in my life to help people get to know Christ, help people get saved? If you would look in the midst of every uncertain circumstance in your whole life through the lens of how is God going to save people through this, you're going, I mean, you're going to have this amazing clarity in God's plan in your life. Because God's plan is that people be saved. And God's plan is to use you to reach people for Him. And if you would look in every moment in your life, how is God using this to help people get saved? I mean, you're going to have certainty that you never had before. You're going to have a peace that you never had before. I can keep going, but the point that I'm making is if you don't do those things, you're going to have anxiety. You're going to, you're going to not understand. Because now when somebody, your loved one dies and you get the opportunity to get up there and speak, you're like, why am I doing this? Why me? Who am I? What am I doing here? Well, you don't understand God's plan. God's plan is that you do something, that you be faithful, that you be a faithful steward of the gospel. Right? I mean, you're in a conflict with your spouse. And then you're about to go to Christmas dinner with your family. Why, why is everything going terrible? My, me, and my, me and my spouse were in a big fight. Now we've got to go to dinner, talk to my family who hate each other anyway. And I don't want to go. Well, how about you two reconcile in Christ? Then you can go to your dinner table and talk to your family about how you and your wife had a really difficult time. However, you reconciled, and you get to teach them what is, what is, all, what is reconciliation all about. You get to sit there and talk to them. Yeah, we almost didn't come tonight because we had such a big problem and we had to fix it. But we'd love to tell you guys how we fixed it. And you could be starting biblical counseling right there at your dinner table. Fix decades and decades of turmoil in your family. Just because you, don't, just because you stay resolute in the face of uncertainty. Just because you don't allow the confusion and the chaos of the world to get to you during this time of year. Do you see this? How this is just, I mean, as clear as day in the Bible, how we ought to be living during this time of year. 
this time in our whole lives. That's the first one, right? I told you salvation. The second lens you need to be looking to is your sanctification. Right? First Thessalonians 4 3 says God's will for you is your sanctification. That is that's literally God's will. It's God's will that none should perish, that all should come to the knowledge of him. And the second lens is God's will for you is sanctification. And so the next question you need to ask yourself is how is this situation, whatever it is in my life, how is it trying to sanctify me? And if you don't know what the word sanctify means, it, it means how to make me more into the image of Christ. How is this situation trying to make me more like Christ? And you always have two roads to go down here too. Uh, you know, you get in a fight with your spouse and you say, well, I'm not, I'm not going to humble myself. I'm not going to apologize and repent. Well, what is the call to follow Christ? To humble myself and to repent. I mean, you have an opportunity in every situation to be sanctified by following Christ, and you get to decide to do it or not to do it. Now, imagine you in a, in a marriage where you have conflict, and you, for the first time maybe, you say, honey, I'm sorry. I know that was wrong. I'm not going to do that anymore. Imagine the fruit that you're going to bear in that marriage, the intimacy you're going to build in that marriage, the openness you're going to build in that marriage. And that, my friends, is called sanctification. One of the great tools of marriage. That is a lens. When you are thinking about how to face uncertainty, you need to look at every situation. How is God trying to save people? How is God trying to make me more like Him? If you would look in those two lenses, you're going to see the world a lot more clear this season. All right. Speaking of understanding God's plan, I want you to look at verse 16b. Same verse, just the end of it. Jesus was born, who was called Christ. I call this the unsurprising surprise of Christmas. That's what, that's what Jesus is, is the unsurprising surprise. Here's what I mean by unsurprising. Jesus incarnate is entering into the narrative, which is it's pretty big. It's a pretty big climax in, in history. It is. It's the most important event ever in the history of the world was that God became a man. Now, I say it's an unsurprising because did you know that the Old Testament contains more than 300 prophecies about the coming Messiah? And of those, all, all of them Jesus fulfilled. So when I say unsurprising, what I'm trying to say is the Bible foretells it. Everyone was waiting for it. You even see Haggai talking about the coming of the, the, new, the new temple and how the, the peace of the Lord is going to be on it. Right? I mean, we understand that the coming of Christ isn't surprising in the fact that we knew it was coming. What was surprising is how it happened. 300 prophecies about the Messiah of Israel of Israel was fulfilled by Christ. A Peter, Peter Stoner is a scientist in mathematical probabilities. And here's how he picked it. You're going to like it in Texas. You may have heard this illustration. But it's how he statistically proves how big of a deal it is uh, about Christ fulfilling prophecy. Peter Stoner said if you take eight prophecies, eight of them, he fulfilled over 300. But if you just take eight, okay, all right, you took eight of them, all right, uh, here's the likelihood that any one person is going to fulfill all of these prophecies prophecies of Christ being born in Bethlehem, being born of a virgin, all those things. So pick eight of them. He says, uh, here's the statistical probability of that. If you take 10 to the power of 17, which is 10, 0, 0, 0, 0, I call that bazillion, a gillion, that's what that number is, okay? If you take that many silver dollars, you take that many silver dollars, and you spread them all throughout Texas, the landmass of Texas, that many silver dollars, 10 with 17 zeros, you're going to have a depth over the whole face of Texas of two feet. Two feet. It's a pretty big state, two feet. Okay? And then 
At that point, if you go and you mix them real good in a, in a nice mixer, okay, mix them all up so you can't know where any of them are, okay, then take a one person and then blindfold him. Blindfold him. Then push him out there somewhere in the great state of Texas and says, you got one shot, bud. Pick up the silver dollar that I told you to pick that has a little X on it. That person is just as likely to pick up the one silver dollar that has the X on it as is one person is likely to fulfill even eight of the 300 prophecies of the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. Now, you think that's pretty amazing. Okay, he fulfilled over 300, and that's just eight. So, statistical probability, if you're one of those people in here, like, there is no way that Christ isn't the Messiah. And there is no way Christ isn't the one who was foretold in the Old Testament that was going to come in the New Testament and is going to save people from their sins. And so for you and for me, there is, no, I mean, there, is what, there is no objection here other than he is who he said he is and that God is a promise-keeping God. You know, if the promises of God are this staggering, I mean, we've really got to think, it's very staggering. I mean, you're going to have a hard time looking at this and think, wow, I don't have to think about that when I leave here. You do. And if his promises are this staggering, we should, point number three, we should expect God to keep his promise. And I love this because I don't think you could string together 300 promises kept. If you made 300 promises, I'd like you to go back into your life and look at those promises. How many of those did you keep? How many did you break? But yeah, we have a perfect God who has them all recorded, and we can go back and say, every single one of these promises were kept by God in Christ. That's called a faithful God. And you can entrust yourself, like 1 Peter 4.19 says, you can entrust yourself to a faithful creator because he has been found faithful. There's a lot I can talk about here. And we'll talk about the, the magi, the, the wise men, as you've heard them called, uh, this Christmas Eve. But suffice it to say this about the wise men, and we're going to talk about them in depth on Christmas Eve, and I want you to be here for that. I want you to invite people because people need to hear the promises of God. People need to hear about God's word, and they get to do it right here. 12 o'clock, 1.30 and 3, 24th. Invite people to be with you. But we can suffice it and left to say this about the Magi. The Magi were Persians. Oh, remember Persians? We just talked about them, right? They were Persian people who heard the prophecies of Daniel. Okay? Long time apart, hundreds of years apart. And these people who were not Jewish, okay, they weren't Christians. There were no Christians at this point. But it's, just, it's for you and me to know in our lens, these people weren't God followers. Right? They weren't people who, who trusted in Christ, who turned away from their sins. I mean, these were just Persian kings who, who listened to the prophecies of Daniel about the coming Messiah. And these people expected God to keep his promise. And this is the crazy thing. These people who don't even follow God trusted God enough to say, hey, I know that prophet Daniel talked about how God would send a star and how this star would be over Bethlehem and at that Bethlehem place, that's where the Messiah is going to be born. They, they trusted God so much that they picked up, they left their homeland in the, in the east, and they traveled all the way to Bethlehem. Like Some of us won't even get up on Sunday mornings to come to church, much less go from the, from the far east all the way to Bethlehem to see if a baby was born. I mean, I want you to think about how people who don't even know God still kind of still keep God at his word more than we often do. As Christians, we need to expect God to keep his promise, and we need to live that way, and that's the whole point here. The Magi lived in a way where they said, I'm going to take God at his word, and I'm going to come, and I'm going to see, come see what God's doing. Now, God's made other promises. Revelation 22, 12 through 13 says this, 
jot that down, Revelation 12, or 22, 12 through 13. Here's a promise, a prophecy of Christ that he has said, that he has over and over again. I just picked one of them in Revelation. He says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. You see, as we looked at the Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled, and you saw the staggering statistics of even eight of them being fulfilled, and now we see and know that God has fulfilled, Christ has filled 300, over 300 of the prophetic Messiah prophecies of the Old Testament. Now, maybe we can just expect God to keep one more promise. And that promise is that he's coming back. Right? And that's what the Christmas season is about. It's not just that Christ was born. The big deal about him being born is that he lived a perfect life, died on our behalf, was buried in a grave, and then resurrected. And then at the end of all that, he said, by the way, I'm coming back. I mean, that's probably a promise that I'm going to keep tucked in the back of my mind every day when I wake up in the morning. Because I'm going to trust that God is going to keep his promises. And my life needs to reflect the understanding that God is a promise-keeping God. And if God says he's coming back, then he's coming back. Recently, I started investing in individual companies. I dipped my foot into one, and I started getting into a couple other ones. And I don't know anything about investing. Maybe I know about as much about investing as some of you know about God's Word. And this may draw a really good line for you. Uh, and so here's what I do. I, I look online, and I'm saying, hey, which one of these investments has the biggest promise? Right? Which one has the biggest promise and the most likelihood to be fulfilled? And when I look at those investments, I say, this one's got a pretty good chance to pan out for me in the future. And then that's how I know how to take what I have and put it into that stock. Because I believe and I trust that this is going to end up giving me this in return. Now, I'll tell you, if I could take all the money in the world that I have ever touched and ever will touch and put it in the stock of Jesus coming back, right? JCB, that's the stock, you can look it up, okay? JCB, I look it up. I would put everything I own in that stock because I know that there is 100% that I am going to receive 100% of the return that I invest in that stock because Jesus is coming back. And I want you to understand how firmly as Christians we believe that. I mean, there is no, ah, he might. No, no, he is because God is a promise-keeping God. And if, if God was so thoroughly, precisely keeping his promises all the way up to the birth of Christ, do you think he just said, yeah, that was good. I'll be done after that. No, no. He's going to continue fulfilling his promises all the way until the redemption, the return of Christ, the rule and the reign of Christ in the millennial, the, the making, ridding the world of evil, coming and, and making a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem and us dwelling there for eternity with Christ. Those are real promises that will be fulfilled, and we have to start acting like it. And when we do, we're going to think, oh, this is, it's not going to be hard for me to understand the power of personal faithfulness. That's just what i got to do because Christ is coming back. i got to be found as a faithful steward. It's going to be easy for me to stay resolute in the face of uncertainty because even though these things are uncertain, the biggest, most important things are fairly certain in my life. I know where I'm going. I know what Christ has awaiting for those who love him or call according to his purpose. And I expect God to keep his promise. Right? That is literally what we need to do in this time of year to adjust our focus on God so we can be faithful followers awaiting his return. Let's be those people, and I mean it, because you can be a beacon of light to a lot of people in your neighborhood. When, when people look at you and say, why aren't you all stressed out and anxious about this time of year? Uh, let me tell you all about it. Bam, gospel. Okay, And it's because you're being faithful. 
Let us be those Christians. Let us be that church. Pray with me. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for how clearly your word deposits the truth of your return, of, of the prophecies fulfilled. God, that you have just made so many promises, you kept them all. It's often us, it's always us in Scripture is found unfaithful. And it's always us, even in our own experience, that have been found unfaithful. God, help us uh, trust you, trust your promises, trust your word. God, help us this morning, maybe for the first time in our life, realize that all your promises are true, all the prophecies were true, and that the same prophecy that said Jesus is coming to save sinners is the same God who said, if you would turn from your sins and trust in me, you'll be saved. God, I pray there's someone in here tonight, this morning, who needs to get to know you, who needs to turn from their sins and trust in you. God, and I pray for the rest of us in here that we would use this opportunity to look through the lens of sanctification and how you've put us in every circumstance that we find ourselves in, that we could be found faithful, that we can be conformed into your image, and if we would just look at the circumstances in our lives, God, that you would be working in them for your good purposes. God, help us understand that this morning. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.